to God's plan for humanity. It is the center of our gospel. Uh, resurrection is a power and reality of God and his kingdom. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that you are right to trust God. See, resurrection, it will be the proof that you are going to get your healing, the proof that you are right to fight for your marriage, the proof that you are right to fight for the salvation of your children. Uh, resurrection is the proof that you are going to receive the answers to the questions you have. Resurrection is proof that you will receive justice. Resurrection is proof you will receive mercy. Resurrection is proof that your life matters, that your history is important, that you are here in this world for a reason. Resurrection is proof that you and I are right to trust in God and to give our trust in Jesus. See, that resurrection moment, that resurrection from the dead, it is the moment that we will realize the fullness of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. I hope it's not a oh-no moment for any of us in this room. I hope that it is filled with joy of what we have to look forward to. So typically, uh, sermons I preach on Easter or uh, Resurrection Sunday, I have tended to focus on uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, rightly so, that is appropriate for, for what we're doing and uh, for the theme of what we're talking about. Uh, but today I want to talk about your resurrection. I'll talk about my resurrection, your resurrection. Uh, because we typically don't spend a lot of time thinking about that or, or talking about that. Uh, and maybe that's a, a strange thing to hear your minister admit to or say, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my resurrection and what I'm going to be doing. Uh, see, the story of Scripture is not that Jesus is the only human being who will be resurrected, but rather he is the trailblazer. He is uh, the first fruits. He is the example that we are called to follow. And I think it's okay that we maybe don't spend a ton of time thinking about, okay, what am I going to be doing the rest of my life after this earthly life? Uh, because resurrection is something that you and I are not capable of. We don't have uh, the power to accomplish that for ourselves. We are forced to trust God. If, if, if he wants to rise, raise someone from the dead, that is his purview. That is uh, that's not within the scope of Calvin's power. Although I think it would be really cool be alive. Uh, and another reason why we don't tend to think about uh, what comes next after resurrection is we don't really have a whole lot of firsthand information about what it's like after we die. We have some things that Jesus tells us. Paul and other biblical writers, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they tell us some things, but still there's a lot of mystery there's a lot of mystery that is not like we, we don't have clarity on that. Paul says it's like we're looking in a mirror dimly. Mirrors back in the, uh, the time Paul lived, it's like a polished piece of metal. And uh, so your image is distorted. It's not clear. It's fuzzy. That's kind of the way we, 
we can see in these teachings about what, what eternity is going to be like. But I think it's good to have an imagination about what is going to be like in times to come. So the title for my sermon this morning is, What Are You Going to Be Doing 120 Years From Now? Think, think about that. What are you going to be doing 120 years from now? I mean, there's a lot of us who honestly think nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm fertilizer at that point. Uh, maybe my bones are providing calcium for some shrub or tree growing on the surface of the, you know, we don't have an imagination for what that's going to be like. Uh, and so that's what I kind of want to talk about this morning. And so as we begin, we're going to start at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Uh, because in Jesus Christ, what most people think about as the end is, in fact, only the beginning. And this is from Revelation 21, verse 4. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Everything new does not imply the end of the story. Everything new speaks about the beginning of the next chapter of a story that goes on and on. Well, first of all, uh, I think we have to own that there's a lot of ambiguity around uh, ideas of resurrection and the afterlife. It just sounds nonsensical to a lot of people. There, is, there was a lot of resistance to the idea of resurrection in Jesus' time. And I think so ever since uh, the time of the Enlightenment and modernity upon us, I think that resistance is even more so in our day and age. Uh, about even considering the possibility that this earthly biological existence that we get for this number of years, that there could be more than this. Because we can't measure it the same way. We can't see it the same way. It is a reality of faith in the heart. But as a Christian... Resurrection is where the rubber meets the road for us. It is the thing that we can never let go of and back away from, this hope and proclamation of the resurrection of the dead. Because everything hinges on that for us. It is the hill that we die on, so to speak, and are hopefully raised on. But even apart from a particular relig religion or apart from Christianity, people think about and imagine what the afterlife could be like. So here's one idea about that. You guys know what cryonics is? This idea of freezing and preserving yourself. And they had so liquid nitrogen, so you, you, you get this body at the time of death. People pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for this, set up trusts. 
so that they can keep the, the liquid nitrogen going for, for forever, potentially. And uh, they put special other things in there that keep ice crystals from forming so that it doesn't destroy the cells and degrade things more than... And the hope is maybe at some point there will be a development in nanotechnology that can fix all the things that are broken, the disease that killed you or whatever. And you can be brought back to life. It's kind of scary stuff to me when I, <laughs> I think about that. And so, so people are thinking, well, what, what could be next? There's a drive in us for trying to figure out what's next. And it's like, we know we have this little limit right here, but we still have this feeling, this just isn't enough. It's not enough. It's so good, I want more. And so we get creative in ways that we think we can get more. This is thinking in terms only of a physical, biological existence. Oh, here's another one that's become pretty popular. Uploading your mind this decade, dying to live forever, how close are we to upload our brain and consciousness into a computer? How close are we? Well, it sounds like we're pretty close. For $10,000, you can upload your mind within this decade. Are you ready to sign on the dotted line? <laughs> it's an idea about how do we keep going? Because the desire is that we want to keep going. And so even if, the, if we think, okay, as, as an individual... This is all there is. I'm whistling in the graveyard. This is my shot. It's going to end nothing after that. But maybe, maybe we can do some things that will help the survival of the species. I, as an individual, there's nothing, there's no hope for me. Sorry. Out of luck, Calvin. But maybe generations to come, we can become an interstellar species and go from planet to planet to planet. We can do the laws of physics, whatever. And so that's another idea. So we need to colonize Mars for that point after the Third World War where we turn basically the Earth into an apocalypse and uh, uh, the radiation and everything kills us off. But if we are an interplanetary species, if we become a race of space uh, farers, I actually think this is kind of cool. And I love the creativity and the ideas. But my hopes for humanity are not pinned to colonizing Mars. They're not pinned to figuring out ways to travel between solar systems and uh, terraforming planets. As interesting as that is, this idea, you know, my hopes are not pinned to these things. But really, most people just kind of live like our physical, biological life. This is it. This is what we got. It's all we can know for sure. So I don't really care about that Christianity business. I don't really care about that God business. Okay. I, this is my shot. Leave me alone. I want to do my thing. I want to have my fun. As long as I'm not hurting you, you do you, I'll do me. And so really philosophically, Philosophically, what that means is your life has no meaning. No meaning beyond whatever value you can extract from these few numbers of years. There is no higher purpose. There's nothing yet to come. 
Uh, we really are just whistling in the graveyard. More and more people are trying to live this way, and it's destroying the morality of our country. It has been for a long time. If we're really just whistling in the graveyard, do, if, if that's the state of being that we're in, do whatever you can, whatever you can get away with, as long as it makes you happy. If you think it makes you happy, do it. Because this is your shot. There's nothing more. That's where most people live. Even functionally, a lot of Christians live in that place. And it's a sad thing to me. But what if there is more? What if there's just the slightest chance that Jesus was actually Lord and not a lunatic and a liar? What if there is just the slimmest chance that Jesus was who he said he was? What if the words of Jesus and his promises were actually true? So we're going to talk about math this morning. A lot of you guys have been waiting a long time for Calvin to talk about math because math is not my thing. But we're going to go back to a mathematician from the 17th century, a guy named Blaise Pascal. And uh, he was a brilliant mind, and he pushed the field of mathematics along in several ways. Uh, but at one point, as a young man, uh, he had been living the hey, it's all about me kind of dream, the wine, the women, all of that stuff, until he had a profound religious experience at some point. And it struck him, and it changed his life forever. And he was, he was a French guy, uh, and he, he was a contemporary of Descartes and other you know, French philosophers, but he was really troubled uh, with... He was really troubled with the, the way that these people he was friends with, that they were atheists and they were, uh, they were betting their life that this life is all there is. And it really bothered him. They were betting, these French uh, phil philosophers, French uh, uh, intellectual thinkers from modernity, uh, that Jesus, who knows about that? He's either a lunatic or a liar. I can't know that for sure, so I look here. And so Pascal, he came up with a mathematical formula to try to help his friends, help his friends out of a state of unbelief, to help them question their assumptions about possibilities. So he says this, and his wager, it's called Pascal's Wager. You can look up if you want to that. <clears throat> Either God is or he is not, but to which view shall we be inclined? Reason cannot decide this question. Reason cannot make you choose either, because reason alone cannot prove either wrong. Does that make sense? So that may, basically there's no ironclad proof available to force a skeptic to believe that there is a God. I cannot force a skeptic to, to, to 
to what, with what I can produce, what I can show them, I cannot force a skeptic. Because everyone holds the keys to their own heart, don't they? You all have experiences, and you make deductions, and you interpret information. Is that right? So if, if someone wants to believe there is no God, no one can force you to stop believing that there is no God. On the other end of that, if you believe there is a God, there is no ironclad proof or evidence out there that is going to be able to convince you that there is no God. It just doesn't exist. It's not there. That you can't force someone to that place. See, the way God works, He doesn't force things on us. He doesn't typically deal in absolutes where we have no choices. We have choices to make. Free will is so important to God, it costs Him an awful lot. We all have faith that is required of us. You're not going to get to heaven without faith. You're not going to enter into the eternity that God wants for us without having some faith along the way. Faith is required. And people have faith in other things, like there is no God, and so they live their lives according to that. So I had a Bible professor of mine uh, when I was in school in Austin, Texas, and uh, he talked about uh, a time when he was a young university student there at the University of Texas, and uh, he wasn't sure about Christianity. He had pretty much decided that he didn't care, first of all, and that it's probably some just giant elaborate ruse. And so at the time when he was going to school, it's in the 1970s, the whole God is dead movement was just exploding across university campuses. And so he goes to this university-sponsored lectureship on... Uh, how God is dead, and God, there's, it's not reasonable to believe in God, it's by leading atheists who came to the university. And so he's kind of leaning that way, and he goes to this uh, with a friend of his, and they sit through, and the friend afterwards says, well, I guess that pretty much explains why there is no God. To which he replied, they pretty much explained everything except one thing, he still hasn't explained my grandmother. No matter what arguments they made, she lived from this place of unshakable faith, this moral compass that would not be diminished, that would not be turned off. She was tenacious in her faith that Jesus is Lord, and she could not be convinced otherwise. And that faith eventually won the day for him. He became a Bible professor, taught people like me. Praise God. So here's the, the formula for Pascal's wager. If you take the probability of, event, of the event, multiply that by the potential payoff. You get that? So the probability, say it's one in four. You multiply that by what you think the payoff is going to be. And then you take away the cost. What does it cost to be a Christian? Well, there are certain things that are asked of me. What does it cost to be an atheist? Well, you get to do what I want more. Uh, maybe the cost is less. 
but then that equals the expected value that you're going to get out of something. Does this make sense a little bit? All right, so this is Pascal's wager. Then this is from a guy named Thomas Morris who helps kind of, he's an interpreter of Pascal because if you read Pascal, his Ponces, stuff like that, uh, maybe you know French, but even just if it's translated English, it's pretty dense stuff and he kind of takes thinking cap, it's not easily accessible. So he's, this is an interpreter. So he's using Pascal's wager formula here. So say the bet is Christianity. The probability he's giving is 50-50. What is the payoff? If the Christian's right, the payoff is eternal life. It's infinite payoff. What is the cost? Finite. Sometimes the cost maybe is substantial. But what is the value, the expected value? It's infinite. What about atheism, the probability, the payoff? Huh, I was right. I died, and, and, and say the atheist was right. They don't even get to rub our noses in it because we just are no more. But what does the atheist miss out on if they happen to be wrong? What does the Christian miss out on if we're wrong? But what does the Christian get if we are right? What if we're right? So you look at that. You guys know the mathematical symbol for infinity? George nodding his head. So it's like, a, it's like an eight, number eight on its side. It's kind of like keeps going, never ends. If you ever see that as the potential payoff, put all of your money right there because that does not end. So the payoff, even, so say, say the probability is not 50-50. Say the probability is uh, that the Christian's right, that Jesus is who he said he was. Say that probability is point zero 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 one percent and keep going, add as many zeros as you like. Say that is the probability, but the payoff is infinite and the cost is everything you hold dear and value in your life here on earth. Even if that is the lowest probability and the cost is so excruciatingly high, the expected value is so great that the rational gambler, if you were a betting person, would always put their money where the expected value is greatest. That's Pascal's wager. He's, he's talking philosophically to help people move to a place where they are questioning their assumptions. I like the way uh, this guy Jim Elliott puts this. He said this, uh, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are you going to bet on Jesus? Are you going to bet on Jesus? If Jesus is right, if Jesus is Lord, we have everything. We have everything to look forward to.
So I got some helpers this morning. Can I get my helpers up here? I got several helpers and my dad's sturgeon pole. And we're going to put my sturgeon pole to good use. Okay, you got that there? So by, you go man your door. Ella there. And we have Anna and Bethany there. Sadie is our fisherwoman. Okay. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? So I've got a lot of help here. All right. I know it's probably hard to see, but there is a line here. Maybe some of you have younger eyes can see. What color is this line? Purple. There's a purple line. I did that for Easter. Purple. All right. So there's a purple line here. Say this line represents your earthly existence, your life. So this is a pretty long line. So if this is Bethany or Anna's life, it looks like you girls get about a little more than 90 years each. So that's pretty good, huh? We'll take that. Some of you, and you'll get there, you'll think 90 years is not enough. So this is a pretty good life, right? And we live this lifetime so many years? What if it just ends there? But what if it doesn't end? What if our life keeps going? If Jesus really is who he said he was, what if that life just keeps going? All right. This is your lifeline. Be careful with it. All right. You ready to go on a journey? Okay. They're going on a journey. Don't worry, moms. I'm only sending them around the world. So they're going to keep going. So, this is my earthly life right here. Right? So many people live like this is all there is. Oh my goodness, they're really fast. So many people live like this is it. This is all we can count on. This is all. But what if it keeps going? What if it keeps going? Huh? Oh. What if it just keeps going? At what point does my strategy change? My strategy is living like this is all there is. At what point do I recognize value here? See, what people do is they live like this is all there is, this, this little earthly existence here. And if I work really hard and I save, 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 and I squirrel away, I can have financial independence. And it's going to be really good right here. And I'm living all for this right here. But we don't think about what's here. What's here 120 years from now? What's, what's down there? See, the crazy thing is that Jesus tells us what you do with this here, this earthly existence, what we do with this here, it determines all the rest of this. And so many people are throwing that away 
Because all we care about is this right here. And it's going to be really good. This is when I retire. It's going to be sweet. And, and people will say, Christian, you are crazy. Because you're, you're, you're giving money. You're hanging out with Christians. You're spending time in a church service wasting valuable hours. You give how much money to those people? You're, you're, you're putting in jeopardy this part right here. You could have such a sweet retirement. And you're risking it all. And you're crazy. And I want to say, no, you're crazy. Because you're risking all of this. On and on and on. What we do in this... Oh, <laughs> what we do in this life, it matters. Can I get you guys help to reel this in? All right. All right. So they're going to reel. Hopefully, maybe, Vi, you follow that line to make sure it doesn't get... All right. Now, the illustration's over. I don't know what the reeling in philosophically would represent or anything like that. So, But let's give a hand to all of our assistants. They did a good job. You see, God wants to give you more than you can possibly consume or enjoy in a 90-year lifespan. He wants to give you so much more. And so resurrection is central to that. But we get so distracted by our little peace, don't we? Our little projects called our life. And we don't give thought. Creatively think about the what's next. I, 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 and I fall into this too. I think about, I want financial freedom. I want Alicia not to have to work. I want to finally get my Tesla. Isn't that going to be great? All that kind of stuff. We're consumed with it. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How small is our vision? Good job. Give him another hand. Thank you. Let's, let's sit down. Such good helpers. See, so many of us, do you guys know what the Heisman Trophy is? What that looks like? So many of us are living our lives when Jesus Christ comes to us and he says, I want to be your Lord. I want to go into partnership with you. I want to work together. I want to show you how to play your cards that you call your life. I'm going to help make it better. And so many people give Jesus the Heisman. No, thank you. I've got my own project called My Own Life. What if Jesus really was who he said he was? What are we putting at risk? What are you thinking? And they call me crazy? But we get distracted. We get distracted. We get in our little projects. We get in our little ruts. And sometimes we need to get broken out of those. Paul says this. He says... He describes our life not like a fishing line, but as a race, that this, gets, this race goes on. He's like, I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to set 
my eyes on the prize and the goal, and I'm going to focus in on it like a laser-guided missile. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's not going to let himself be distracted. He's zeroing in on the possibility that the end is not the end, that with Jesus Christ it just gets better and better and better. But I think a problem we have as Christians is we have almost no imagination of, of what we're going to be doing after, after we die, after this biological, earthly existence ends. What are we going to be doing? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I think it's okay to imagine, what would you like heaven to be like? What would you like to be doing for eternity? And some things that have held us back are some really bad ideas about what heaven is like. Here's one bad idea. That guy up on cloud eight, he's been playing the same tune for 137 years. (coughs) Does that sound like heaven? Or maybe I become a little bald, chubby baby with wings. Don't picture that. (laughs) The bald thing's already happening. We don't always have imagination. Sometimes, or even worse than these, some people imagine heaven to be a nonstop church service. It just keeps going on and on. They won't let me out. They've locked the doors. It just keeps... This guy never... He never shuts up. Is that what heaven's going to be like? Some people think, uh, all right, well, maybe... Maybe I'll kind of be absorbed into the cosmic identity of God. I'll be a one little tiny fraction of a memory that God carries or something like that. Just kind of like smoke or a wisp or I've been kind of absorbed in, into the God of the universe. That's not biblical. That's not what Jesus describes. We're not just going to be sitting there strumming harps. I think you and I are going to be more alive than we are right now. You are going to be more yourself than you have ever been. You are going to be the you that God has always dreamed of, free from sin, built character, all of these experiences we've had in this life that build our character to make us safe to be God's partners for all eternity. That's what Jesus Christ offers us. So I think we're not going to be less alive. We're going to be more alive. Our capacity to enjoy pleasure, it's not going to be less. It's going to be more. 
going to continue through all eternity to grow and grow and grow, and the more it grows and the more we get to enjoy it and experience, the greater Jesus Christ becomes. For all eternity, we are going to realize the generosity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We'll just keep growing into it. And it's going to be amazing. So I can't say for sure or certain what I'm going to be doing 120 years from now. I know there's things I won't be doing. And so this, the, the rest of our time this morning, I'm about done. And then uh, this next week, I want to talk more concretely about what is it that we're going to be doing. Scripturally, what does the Bible teach us about what we're going to be doing for eternity? Because there's some interesting stuff in there, and I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn. But here's one. I'm just doing one quick one this morning. Revelation 22, verse 4 and 5. And they shall live with his face in view, and they, they that belong to him, will sh it, it'll show on your face that you belong to the Lord. Darkness will no longer be, and they will not need lamps or sunlight because God the Lord will be radiant in their midst, and they will reign through the ages of ages. What are you going to be doing for eternity? You're going to be together with your God. You are going to be reigning. Reigning is a kind of work that we do. So there is work to be done in your eternity. Some of you think that sounds like bad news. But think about, think about this. Think about how it all began in Genesis. So we'll go back from the end of the Bible to the very beginning. What happens when sin enters the picture? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it. But work is not the curse. The curse is the way we have to work down here, east of Eden. But did work exist before sin? Did work exist before sin came and messed everything up? We'll go back a chapter earlier. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Before the fall, there was work going on. How was that work being done before it was having to be done in the sweat of our brow? Before everything got gummied up by sin in this world? See, when I look at these beginning verses in Genesis and what, what Adam and Eve are doing together if, in, in, as gardeners, keeping that and the fellowship that they had, it looks a lot like raining to me a kind of work that, has, that can be done without the sweat of your brow. It looks like naming of animals. God doesn't say, here, I'll name these, and this is what you... He wants us to have a part in that. He said, he, he, he's curious, God is, to, to let the man name them and see what names they comes up with and to let us have a part and a role that's going to keep going on and on.
Work is not the curse. Work is the production of value. And we're going to be empowered by God throughout eternity to be creating art. We're going to be on building projects. We're going to team up and we're going to find interesting things to do. So think about this. BP, you can come up here. I'm done. Think about how inspiration is tied to work. How life-giving it is to figure out how to do things. Have you ever experienced a kind of collaboration and camaraderie that can come and working together with others in like-minded ways to accomplish a project? So some of you have not experienced very good leadership. Imagine that you are under the best management imaginable. That you don't have to deal with leaders who are incompetent anymore. Maybe you're the incompetent one and can't admit it. That's not going to be the problem either. What are you going to be doing 120 years from now? I don't know. What if you could make something amazing, build something amazing, create some kind of amazing piece of art? What if the problem is no longer time? You can take as much time as you want. What if money isn't the issue anymore? I can't afford that. What if the sweat of your brow and enough manpower is not an issue anymore? What if a Lane County building permit is not what's holding you back anymore? What are you going to be doing? What are you going to be creating? See, if we dream about that a little bit, we realize, okay, maybe I can be a little bit different in my strategy with that little short piece of fishing line that I call my life. And I can invest in something where thieves do not break in and steal. I can invest in something where moths, they don't eat it up. It can't go away. It doesn't fade. It doesn't diminish. That's the faith that Jesus is inviting us into. And you step into that place, you realize the truth of it and the freedom of it. So we offer an invitation every Sunday in this church for the prayers of this congregation or to put the Lord on in baptism, uh, but invite you also think about what would you like to be doing 120 years from now? Or whatever amount of time. I want to be doing this 120 years, but at 500 years, oh, I'm going to start this project. Just go nuts. Dream. Talk to the Lord. And we just, we wake up slowly over time to realize the immense value of everything you and I are given in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing together.